Well, good evening. Welcome. Good evening. And let's open with a word of prayer first. I just want to get started with turning to the Lord. So I'll just I'll be seated. Uh, find a comfortable seat. And Heavenly Father, I just, we just come before you just uh, wanting to hear from you this evening, to have your truth revealed. Lord, just use my faculties, my speech, you know, for, for such. We just pray for greater clarity on trends in the church today, greater understanding of what people out there are thinking, and so that we could be better equipped just to speak truth to uh, this present church culture. Uh, we just pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Uh, I think earlier, last month, there was one message given on the Jehovah's Witnesses and one on the Mormons, and this is going to be the third in the sequence. So, um, yeah, most people would not place this in that sequence, but I do. Not because it's exactly the same sort of thing, but um, it is sort of a... It's sort of a culture out there that we need, we need to take a look at to know what exactly do they think, what is their expectation or their eschatology, what is their, you know, their worldview, um, what drives them, in other words. And uh, apostolic prophetic is not exactly like a group like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses because... The Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, each one is very easily identifiable. You know, you're, you know, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, their building is very clearly named Kingdom Hall. And every Jehovah's Witness will, will tell you very specifically that, yes, you know, that they are. I am a Jehovah's Witness. There's no you know, confusion or wondering as to, you know, who they are. Same with the Mormons. Their buildings are, or their worship buildings are called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they're clearly identifiable and visible. Apostolic prophetic is not. Uh, and we'll get into that shortly. But um, uh, before I begin uh, in earnest here, I'd just like to have you refrain from asking any questions until the end. I don't know how long this will take. And if we have time at the end, I'll be glad to take some questions. And uh, I could probably go over hours on this, but... Um, it's sort of like a brand something. Uh, it's a topic that could take several hours to to to, to do justice to, but we're going to try to do a, do as best we can tonight. Also, I've also um, made some resources available here. Um, the the handout that you have is based on a lengthier uh, preparation that I did. Uh, I have done recently. If you like the lengthier version. I'll, I'll be glad to email you a copy of it if you just, you know, give me your email address or uh, write it down here or, or send me an email and say send document. My email address is, I believe, is it on? Yeah, it is on the handout. You can email that address and tell me that you want the expanded version. Um, I'll be glad to send it to you. Also, there is a website out there called Truth to Action, and it is, uh, it's a group of leftists who are observing Christians in politics. And it's an interesting site. It is not a bad one to look at. I've, I've taken a document of theirs. I've made it into a, um, a Word document. You can get it online. It is called the Resource Directory for the New Apostolic Reformation, dated in 2010. 
and it is eight pages long, the Word, Microsoft Word version, and it's very well done. It seems to be pretty thorough. They're not terribly biased, uh, but it gives some very good information you know, on the New Apostolic Reformation, which again is something we're not going to talk about too much tonight, but that is part of the picture. Okay. Uh, before I, we talk about apostolic prophetic, it's probably good to talk about a sequence of movements. You know, the sequence that this comes in, and I've got that on the first page of the handout. Um, I, the first one I put as Pentecostalism, although Pentecostalism sort of came out of the holiness movement. Pentecostalism was a movement that has been around since the early 1900s. And it brought with it the second blessing theology that essentially states that, you know, to be a real Christian, you need to have the second blessing. Your first blessing is when you were born again, but your second one is when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, and that is traditional, still traditional Pentecostal teaching, um, charismatic teaching even, um, I, I was a believer in that for many years, but I did a Bible study, did a real thorough Bible study on the topic several, many years ago, and really became convinced that there, there is no definitive second blessing in the Christian life. There are future, bless, you know, future blessings after being born again, but there's not one definitive one that takes you into a new stage or new realm of, of spiritual experience. And, but anyway, the Pentecostals are the ones who... Well, the holiness people actually introduced it when they said that, they, that the second blessing is when you enter into a, a, state, a state of holiness. And I'm not, a, I'm not an authority on church history, but I do know that the first people came along, or these people came along saying that, you know, you need to have this experience where you enter into a state where you no longer sin. And again, that, the holiness people had different the theologies of holiness, uh, this one is one of them. Um, not everybody believes quite that way. But anyway, the Pentecostals later came along, and uh, their emphasis went from having the second blessing for the sake of holiness to having the second blessing for the sake of power. Sort of a change in um, what, it, what the purpose of the blessing was for, which again made me sort of wonder, you know, why so many second blessing theologies and that's not the, these are not the only two. Makes you sort of wonder about the whole uh, idea when there's no, no real agreement on it, you know, in, in the church world. Okay, um, later on in the, 19, in the 20th century, there was a healing revival. That was mainly in the 40s. I don't know much about it. I've heard some of the names. I've heard some of the, uh, some very general information about it, but that was a, you know, the introduction of the fact that, you know, there is healing in the atonement. Um, again, that is, uh, some people say that, you know, unequivocally. Um, again, I'm not going to debate that issue, but I'm saying that that is what was introduced, you know, at least, or at least highlighted during the um, healing revival. In 1948, we have an interesting development in Christian history, and it's called the latter reign, or at least the beginning of the latter reign. And uh, I've uh, done a little study on that. Latter Rain had brought in some ideas that differed from Pentecostalism. Um, 
they believed in the laying on of hands for receiving spiritual gifts, for receiving the spirit, for, you know, for being, uh, for uh, receiving ministry, uh, offices, whatever. Um, they also believed in the manifested sons of God, which um, is a very controversial doctrine to say the least. Uh, and I don't think... What would document manifest? The, the, the manifested sons of God. Yeah, it's a um, very, very controversial one. Uh, it's split Pentecostalism in its time. And I don't know if I want to get a lot into that. I, I'm, <clears throat> I think there's reference to it later on. The latter rain uh, sort of disappeared out of sight for after, in the 50s sometimes. Uh, there are still some latter rain people around, some of whom I have met in person. Um, the latter rain actually, the latter, some latter rain teachers actually began to teach the charismatics when they came on the scene. So, so the latter rain has had influence, you know, since uh, since its inception. Okay, now the charismatic movement that sort of brings us into our time, the time of of many of us. Now that began in the '60s. I was there for some of it. Um, and again, had an emphasis on spiritual gifts, on the second blessing. Um, uh, many people who came to faith in the Jesus People movement became charismatics later on. Uh, they were going into it afterward. The uh, word of faith is something I put in brackets because I don't think word of faith really comes in this sequence, although it's you know, exists during this time frame. The word of faith teaching does not originate in, in this sequence of, of movements. It kind of has another source. But um, there are similarities, and, and people have gone from charismatic movement to word of faith to apostolic prophetic. So people have made the rounds, you know, in, in our time. And the thing that we are talking about tonight is apostolic prophetic, I sometimes want to say apostolic prophetic movement. I don't like that word movement that much. Sometimes I just say apostolic prophetic. You know, two adjectives, no noun following. That began in the 1980s and sort of picked up where the charismatics left off. The apostolic prophetic people do look to the charismatics as being their forerunners. They don't look to word of faith as their forerunners. They look to the charismatics. And, and again, some of them were in it and, you know, graduated uh, you know, progressed, you know, to the, to the most recent movement. Suppose it would be fair if I would mention, give a little bit of my own background, uh, what makes me a supposed authority. Uh, I became a Christian on the university campus in 1970 during times of turmoil. And soon afterward, during the, year, the following year that I was on campus, I heard all about the charismatic movement. I heard about the spiritual gifts. I heard about baptism of the spirit. And I was puzzled by it. wondered how does that fit in the overall picture of the gospel as I, as I had learned it. Um, I didn't really, uh, I was a little fearful of it at first. And then when I left campus after my first year, or my last year there, which was also my first year as a Christian, 
I went to my hometown where I went to a Pentecostal church for a couple years, and there I heard more about, you know, the baptism of the Spirit, and I heard about uh, the Pentecostals at the time were just just amazed at everything that was happening among the Catholics, among the Lutherans, uh, the way the Holy Spirit was being poured out upon uh, people like the Catholics. They were just some were some probably doubted, others were quite impressed. Um, I, before long, was just sort of was absorbed into that environment. And when I did leave my hometown, came back to the cities, I was, I got very, I plunged headlong into the charismatic movement in the cities. I did that, that began in the mid-70s and ended in the mid-80s. I was actually involved in two denominational renewal movements, the Lutheran and the Catholic. Um, I was very close to the Catholic renewal, although I, I had never been a Catholic. I was raised Lutheran and uh, what was really very uh, a real devotee of the Lutheran charismatic renewal. And so I, those were the two subgroupings that I was with uh, during that time period. Uh, I was actually at that time that I began coming to Twin City Fellowship also around 1980. And uh, around 1985, I just grew disgusted with the charismatic renewal, just got up and left it and moved out of town at the same time. So, um, you know, I just left, a, just abandoned the charismatic movement also. And so I lived a hermit-like existence for a few years up in my hometown. Um, I also, in the 90s, when I was back in town, oh, in the late 80s, and for about 10 years, I was very much a devotee of the latter rain. I was sold on their message, although I never knew very many latter rain people. And so I was really keen on that message and, again, thought I knew more than charismatics did and more than apostolic prophetic people did. I had this attitude that I knew more than, than they did. And... Uh, Although I don't know how the enlightenment level of either of us compares, with, you know, compares, but uh, I certainly thought that I knew more than most Christians around me, and so that uh, did not, does not contribute to one's one's uh, humility or being humble. But <laughs> I'm recovering from a cold too, so I need a little liquid here. Okay, then. <clears throat> In the late 90s, I was living in the city of Rochester, and, I, and that was where I was able to observe the apostolic prophetic groups. There were three, that, three there that I know of, and since it's a small community and these are small groups, I was able to observe things on the grassroots level there, and I, was, I learned a lot. I was flowing with the apostolic prophetic, but I was very suspicious of it at the same time. I was going to one particular church that was not a bad experience for me at the time, even though I had all these misgivings and all these red flags were going, you know, seeing all these red flags everywhere. And then uh, I did leave Rochester and I left that particular group that I was in and all the other groups, all the other people I knew down there and came up to, uh, back to the cities and it was around that time, I I think it was the year 2005 that I started coming to Twin City Fellowship again and it was there where I really Learn to appreciate the, uh, the preaching of the gospel, the expository preaching. And I realized, hey, I've been, this is so brand new. I've never had it before. And look how good it is and all, how beneficial it is. And so at, at that point, I made my break with, you know, with all that stuff in the past. And, uh, but nevertheless, I have all this experience 
look back to that I would like to use in, in a profitable way. Even since then, I have gone to some, some events, uh, apostolic prophetic events here in the cities. I have gone to some just to do like, on a field trip. Um, the snoop, you know. <laughs> I have a lot of, I'm very curious about some of the things that are out there. So I do, I do go to these events and um, I go to the ones where there's large numbers of people so I won't be, you know, up, you know seen as being, you know, an outsider. You know, like a group like this, I'd stay away because I'd be obviously an outsider if I came in. So I go to the large ones where you can blend in with the crowd. And... Okay, a few more things I, would, I should say here is I made a few statements in the second, in the middle of the first page of the handout. In the Apostolic Prophetic, I put a few statements uh, that I just need to clarify as introductory. First of all, I said we're, we're, we're calling this thing by two adjectives, apostolic, prophetic, because they believe in apostles and prophets. <clears throat> And say that they are for today, and they all they claim to have a lot of them. Now, what do we call it? Is this a cult? Is it a sect? Is it a, is it a dynamic? Is it a culture? And I'm not sure. It's a, I like to call it a culture. It's always a safe thing to call something. Um, I, you know, it's cultish in places. I don't know if it's sectarian, but it is, it is very cultish. And there are different different groups. Are there are different cultic groups within the apostolic prophetic? In fact, probably uh, a multitude of them. And like I said earlier, its existence is not perfectly obvious. It's not easily identifiable. Uh, you can drive past the church, and it can, it can be called, you can have a name like North Heights Lutheran, and you never think it was apostolic prophetic, but yes, it is. The, the name of the church does not tell you anything. Um, a lot of assemblies of God have become apostolic prophetic, so the name of the church doesn't say anything. And, uh, and if it's a, like a, a generic name, uh, you know, some type of community church or whatever, it's, uh, the names don't you know, reveal that, that it is or isn't. Uh, and, and also I discovered that not everybody, not everybody who's in this, in this group, in these groupings, really even likes that word or uses that word. So the people that are in it may not call themselves that. So just like I said, it's things are a little bit vague, more vague here. And so you really have to uh, take a look at what, what, what are they really teaching? Do they have apostles and prophets? Uh, what are their doctrines? Okay, and another thing I, I just need to say is that it's a culture with many subcultures. The, they don't all believe the same way by any means. Um, when I was in Rochester, I observed that the apostolic prophetic groups did not even like each other that much all the time. There was... The leaders often, you know, did not talk to each other very often. They were just, they had gone their separate ways. They had their own interests, and so there was not a lot of communication. Uh, people would, you know, move from one church to another, and uh, people were always moving from one church to another uh, in this, in the apostolic prophetic. And uh, so whenever I make a, uh, a statement about apostolic prophetic movement, it might just be a generalization and not a a statement that applies to every situation. In fact, much of the time, uh, statements I make will be generalizations. So um, I just want to clarify all these things before we proceed. 
Okay, another, I listed uh, at the bottom of page one four happenings that have taken place in recent years. I don't know if I want to get into, go into a lot of these and saying much about them. It all began in Toronto in 1995. Uh, there was a big outpouring of something, and people were going there, and, and uh, you know, you don't know who to believe. When you talk to people who had been there, you don't really know who to believe. Some people say, well, they, it was like being in the very courts of heaven. You know, you saw the Lord's presence. We, we, felt, you know, we felt the Lord's presence. We were blessed. We were refreshed. We were, you know, it was, we saw healings and signs and wonders and heard the Lord speak and everything. And, and another person who has gone to the same meeting comes home and says, boy, that was the most dreadful thing I had ever been at in my life. <laughs> so what, what do you do with reports like that. You know, what does the average person, you know, who's sort of a distant observer, what's he, supposed to, he or she supposed to think? Well, it's confusing. You know, what is really going on? That people come back with, with totally opposite reports, totally opposite assessments. Well, that's, uh, that's part of the dynamic. There's, uh, people have different reactions, different uh, it's very subjective. Well, the way people react is, of course, very subjective. Something, uh, some people are very much impressed by what they see. They're blessed. They're impressed. They're inspired. Other people are horrified, scandalized uh, by, at the same meeting or at the same, you know, in the same church. Uh, that's something I'm sure we've all maybe heard or experienced that or know about this. Uh, I don't know how much more I want to say about that at the moment. But... Uh, People's, like I said, people's reactions are you know, subjective and uh, vary, and people, obviously someone's under delusion. You know, there's some delusion going on if people come back with, with such varying assessments. Okay, let's see. Let's see, what's the next one? Okay, I guess what I, on page two at the top, I meant, it's called this section, The Move of God. And that's, again, a word I don't, a phrase I don't particularly like, but it's, it's short, and it is a move of some kind, and I don't know if God's name should be dragged into it, but that's the way a lot of the people in it are thinking, so I'm using it sort of in, you know, to accommodate to them, and because it's a nice short, uh, short phrase. And it all begins with somebody coming along with a declaration. And and it it's, could be in a meeting with a you know a powerful worship team in a big auditorium. It could be in a smaller church, but some evangelist comes along, somebody comes along from far away, declaring what God is doing on the on the face of the earth today. And I've I've heard this about four or four decades, different versions of this declaration. But, any, but they come along saying that God is doing something new, revolutionary. It's going to change the world. It's going to change the church. Uh, great things will happen. It's a new day for the church. There will be blessings, healing, signs and wonders. You know, nations will fall before the Lord. Cities will turn and repent. You know, city governments will become Christian or national governments will become Christian. All these predictions of a great work that's going to profoundly change the whole world. And, of course... Uh, of course, the church is, uh, obviously, it's going to include the church also. Now, some people will say, you know, why, where's, why, is, why this change all of a sudden? Some people are not going to be swept away by this message. 
Some people will, others will not. Some people will say, okay, why is this message coming along at this moment in time? It, we've had our pre, you know, the present gospel for 2,000 years. Why this big change all of a sudden? And again, the, the evangelist or the herald will have that question answered. He'll have it, be ready to answer that question. He'll be saying, like, God is, uh, well, that's just God's plan for the, for the ages. That's God's plan for, you know, for human history, that this was a moment when it's supposed to begin. And they'll go back and, you know, refer to all the scriptural references about, you know, the, the, uh, about Zion coming back to life, the dry bones coming together. And, you know, they're all, you know, draw these from the Old Testament, now, and one other thing that, that the declarer will say, or the, this, I'm going to say the announcer, the evangelist, whatever, that God is going to restore something that the church has lost over the years. Now, because the church went into, you know, or lost faith, went into rebellion, got worldly, whatever it did, it lost its blessing, it lost its heritage, lost its inheritance, it became worldly, it became this or that. They, they lost the gifts, they lost the, the ministry of the Spirit, they lost the fivefold ministry. And so God is now restoring it. And this message of restoration does, does appeal to a lot of people. The idea of a restoration is very appealing to, to some people. And uh, again, uh, the, um, they will refer back to you know, the restoration under Ezra and Nehemiah, and there'll be all kinds of parallels to be found in the Old Testament. And they'll say that the church is, is only going to be recovered. It'll be a glorious church. It'll be victorious. It's going to uh, take nations and cities. You know, uh, um, it's going to become triumphant. It's going to rule. Dominion is a word that some of them use. And the church will have dominion. Okay. So all these promises are made regarding a glorious church. Now, then there's the, uh, the paragraph called the initiation on, at the top of the middle of page two. Okay, so then what are you, what are you supposed to do? You, the uh, man or woman in the audience, you are called upon to have this initiation into this move of God. The initiation is, well, you have to come forward be prayed for, receive an impartation, receive, have some kind of experience, uh, ecstatic, revelatory, maybe very emotional, maybe very wild, maybe very, uh, maybe very just uh, sedate, you know, it has varying degrees of intensity. And, it, and usually the atmosphere in the meeting is, is geared for that, the music, the oratory, you know, the, uh, everything is geared to appeal to, you know, to you to come forward, have this experience, make this decision. And there's also warnings about the urgency of this, that you have to get with the program. You begin flowing with what God is doing. Don't miss out on God's best for you. He said, you surely don't want to be left behind in this great work of God, do you? That again, that appeals to people, weakens their resistance, you know, appeals to people. And as a result of this declaration, you know, a, uh, a fellowship or a church is formed, you know, in that area. Maybe it's a suburb, maybe it's a little town. The people who have received this message, they sort of gather together, 
They, maybe they come under the authority of an apostle who makes periodic visits. Maybe they might be visited by prophets. Um, they, you know, set up their own church, find a building. Uh, they now get invited to all these prophetic conferences, so they start traveling all over the country to go to these conferences where they can meet all these apostles and prophets and, and just take part in this great work of God, be refreshed and be inspired. Okay, and they can also be trained in supernatural ministry. There are, they will, schools have been set up for that. They can get special training, learn techniques. Um, so become, become a magos. I mean, that's, I think that's the right word. Magoi, plural. Um, also, the, uh, there's a paragraph, I put a paragraph here called The Call. I think I've already covered that pretty much, that you know, the leaders are going to tell the group the great plan that God has for this group. Now, when I was in uh, Rochester, one, one of the groups, one apostolic prophetic group, their purpose, their, per, their vision was that they were going to be a church for healing, for healing in Rochester, alongside the Mayo Clinic. They could take the hard cases that the Mayo Clinic couldn't handle. <laughs> no, that's serious. That's true. Rochester was going to be a city of healing, both, and this church would take part in it. And in, obviously, that meant you know, people would be coming from miles around from all over the world just to be healed, you know, come to both the clinic and to the church for, you know, for treatment. And uh, they were, you know, they really believed that. And there, the other church in town was much more of a dominionist church. The, the leader was a real warlord. He said, I'm here to take this city. You know, I'm, I've come to this town, you know, I'm settling down here, establish this church, and we're going to take this city. The, the, the city fathers are going to turn to us for advice because they will need our, our godly counsel and wisdom. Now, I don't think I would trust any major decision to anybody in that particular church, but, but that, is the, that is the contrast in groups, in, like in one town. You've got the nice, gentle church that wants to heal everybody. You've got the other church that wants to rule everybody. So that's, uh, that's the way it is out there in the apostolic prophetic world. <laughs> and groups in between, you know, all over the place. And again, the, the appeal, the next paragraph, um, I've already alluded to this, that there's an appeal made to put aside your personal interests, you know, and labor for Christ and his kingdom. You know, if you're planning on going into college and becoming a, an attorney, you know, set that aside. There's more important things in life. You've got to get into this move of God, go out and impact the world for Christ and his kingdom. And there is an appeal to youth made, a really appeal to youth made uh, by apostolic prophetic people. Sometimes answering the call is equated to enlisting in God's end time army, and a lot of militant, uh, militant vocabulary is used. After all, God is raising up an army to do battle with the enemy, to overthrow the enemy. And again, Christians are swayed by this. They think that this is really what God is doing. You know, the, the power, the impact, the force, the authority of the speaker. This is all very, it is all very enchanting. And especially for young Christians who are just sort of feeling their way around and visiting different churches. 
I tremble for you know what can happen or what is happening, what does happen. Uh, then on page three, I've listed some of the reasons why people are drawn to this. Uh, first of all, it, it, it's, it offers excitement. That's one reason that people come into it. It is quite exciting. There are promises of prosperity, success, and health for the individual. Prom- a promise of blessing. Life is going to turn out good. You know, we'll have, you know, all be prosperous. Uh, life will go well. No problems. Um, a problem-free life, at least for the most part. Uh, life will be glorious. So they're looking for glory and earthly glory. And again, the, the optimism that comes with this declaration is an optimism that is hard to refuse. After all, God is saving, transforming, restoring, renewing, healing, blessing the world. I put that statement there. I put all the verbs I could think of in that one statement. <laughs> and you'll hear, all, you'll hear every one of these and maybe others. So I made one composite statement of what their expectation is. And we are told we can take part in this, in this happening. Well, you know, insignificant little old me can time, play a role in the transforming of the nations. Like I said, it's very, it's, it can be very enchanting. Uh, another thing, it offers the, uh, I, I wrote KG, that means kingdom of God. I abbreviate a lot and I you know, write my, my personal notes. It gives the kingdom of God more immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to you know, wait through trials, tribulations. You don't, have to, uh, uh, you don't have to wait around. You know, uh, you don't have to go by, well, let's see, you don't, <clears throat> you don't have to live by faith alone. You know, we, when we, as Christians, we know that a lot of our life is, is by faith. We, we live knowing, believing that certain things are true, even though we cannot prove them. They're not perfect. Um, you can't prove it to the skeptic. But as Christians, we, we live by f- faith and not by sight. And sometimes there just is not a lot of sight. We still have to plod along in faith, where there's nothing you know, around us that's visible, that tells us, that, yeah, that gives us assurance that we're doing the right thing or, or thinking the right way. But this offers you know, the, the visible very quickly, you know, very readily. And another thing that I noticed about the, the groups that I've observed is that a lot of individuals come into these groups or into a group because they're looking for the resolution of a major personal problem. And, and it could be um, a very debilitating illness, a handicap. Uh, they come along and they come into the group. Uh, they hear, you know, people, you know, hear encouragement to believe God for, the, for miracles, for the impossible. They take a stand, you know, I'm going to believe for the curing of my, you know, my back or my whatever, my heart condition. And they, you know, they hold on to that confession for, well, for a while at least. Other, other people, other individuals come in there because they want a family life of some kind. Um, others have serious maybe mental problems that they you know, want relief. They want relief for something. I run into people in these groups who have the same sex attraction problem, who have thinking they're going to get fixed you know, in the group. 
Um, so, so again, it, it offers the, it's the thing that's going to resolve my major problem, the thing that has, you know, hindered me all these years. It's a big blight on me, a big sorrow for me. It's going to resolve that issue. It's, they have hope. You know, it gives them hope. And also, it gives you access to the supernatural, which, you know, we'll maybe get into later. You know, you have sign, uh, visions, prophecies, oracles, dreams. You can get words from the prophets. Um, you have access to the supernatural. You know, um, one other thing I should say about, about people who come into the groups, a lot of them come into the groups and they don't have the experience of any kind. They have no experience of any kind. You know, they're drawn into the group. They like the group. It meets their need. Uh, people really welcome them. Usually you're welcomed when you come into a group like that. They, they're so happy, you know, that somebody's finally, you know, wanting to come to us or to be blessed by us. And so... People are welcomed. They might be prayed over for, for experiences or something like that. They may want the experience. They may not. But a lot of people will come into a group. They will never have experiences. But they like the group. It meets their need. And they have, it has, they have the hope for relief of their major, you know, their major problem. Um, I was also going to say, I'll probably say that later too, is that you don't have to be saved to be drawn into and enchanted by, you know, this sort of thing. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the people who come in, you know, have never been converted to, you know, true biblical faith. The experience they have convinces them and others that they are truly saved. However, it's, it's a false assurance. A lot of these people have false assurance. A lot of, them are, a lot of these people are still wondering if they really are saved. You know, people, you know, do not, not everybody there has assurance of salvation. Okay. Uh, and again, uh, this appeals to younger people and visionaries who are pioneers and trailblazers. Uh, you know, action, the people of action, movers and shakers who want to go out and impact the world. And they're encouraged you get a lot of encouragement to do, you know, to go out, impact the world, give your all for God. Um, and again, like like I said earlier, um, okay, that's then under the section called the Church in this age. Again, the eschatology. There's a difference in eschatology, which might be where the greatest difference is. Um, the apostolic prophetic people must usher in the kingdom of God through their own efforts. Again, they're empowered by God, equipped by God, but they are going to do this. It's up to them to usher in the kingdom of God. They know the techniques. They have the tools. They're going to do it. Whereas you know, the gospel of grace believes that the church is sort of live a more a humble lifestyle. They're not gonna, they might not have a lot of sight to go by. It's going to be a faith much of the time or a great deal of the time. The church is walking the truth, obey the commandments of Christ, you know, live by the gospel, live by the teachings of the New Testament, and wait for Jesus' return. You know, to love the brotherhood, to encourage each other, help each other with our sanctification, without a lot of, you know, glamour involved, without a lot of fireworks, a lot of glitz, a lot of, you know, earth-shaking activity, uh, 
you know, being a missionary on, in some distant country, you know, where, there's not, where, where the living standards are not that great and life is, is rough, you know, is, that's what some Christians are having to deal with. That's where they have to live, you know. And, um, and God is not necessarily going to relieve them of that by, with some great change in their circumstances, you know, which is what, what people are looking for. They want a, a quick change in circumstances, their, their, you know, their, their own circumstances. Um, my next section here is called Subjective versus Objective. And I think here at Gospel of Grace, we're familiar with, with, this, with, with what I've written here. Uh, the, you know, the subjective being you know, teachings of the prophets, the revelations of apostles, the per, you know, personal dreams, visions, prophecies, inferences from spiritual experience, wishful thinking is the source of truth for some people. And that is the source of truth for an apostolic prophetic to a great degree. They, do, they will not deny the Bible. They will, they'll say they believe the Bible, and I wouldn't question you know, their statement. But, but they just don't, uh, they don't think that the, their, what they're into, what their, their subjective words and prophecies could possibly contradict the Bible. So they don't really com- do a lot of comparison. They just assume that there is no contradiction. So they don't give it a lot of thought. And, and people are always wanting to know, you know, what is the Spirit saying to us at this moment? How is the Spirit leading us? You want to know what the Spirit, what the Spirit is saying. And as, I've just, as I was writing this, I, uh, I really began to treasure the statement in Hebrews 1.1 that says, you know, God has spoken in our days in his Son. You know, God has made a statement in his Son. That's where we start. What does this mean? What, what is the, how do we flesh out this statement? Let's, let's learn what, what God said. That is our, our starting point. It's not, you know, turning inward, looking, or trying to get a vision, a prophecy, or going to a prophetic conference, um, or, you know, trying to find, or opening the Bible and, you know, pointing to a verse, or uh, just to learn, you know, just learn, what, learn the statement that God has made in his son. Uh, let's see. I think what I'll do is I'll probably conclude. Let's see. Um, okay, I did write a section here called, Are They Real Christians? I think I answered that. And they're a mixture of saved and unsaved. Many were saved outside of the apostolic prophetic and found their way into it. Uh, so they, uh, and many are drawn, many saved and unsaved people are drawn by the music, the oratory, and the atmosphere. And the saved who are drawn to it were never really grounded in the gospel. That is the conclusion I've had to come to. They were just very shallow in the gospel. They never, they never did grasp the statement that God made in his, in his son. Now, I th- Okay, we've got about 15 minutes uh, left. What I think I'll do is, um, well, first of all, I'll mention the, on page five of your handout, I compiled a list of apostles and prophets here in the Twin Cities. Now, I also listed three church, well, two, two churches 
And then a group called Apostles of the City, which is a, a group that is not well known, but I've heard about them for at least 20 years or so. Um, uh, I think some, most of the men whose names I have listed here, I'm not certain that each one calls himself an apostle or prophet, but uh, they sort of serve in that capacity. So I, you might as well call them one, one or the other. Um, some of these men I have, I think I've met and talked to. They, I mean, they don't remember me, I'm sure, but I have seen them in a public meeting somewhere. One interesting thing, a fact that may have no significance at all is that most of these prophets and apostles, their area code is 763. Don't ask me why. That's just something I've noticed. They're sort of up there in the northwestern suburbs, most of them. I don't know if that's where... If that's... uh, If that's... uh, in a good place for a good place for apostles and prophets. It's maybe they have a settlement, gonna settle, make a settlement there or something. I don't know. But so what I okay, we've got about ten or twelve minutes here. I'll, I can open uh, open up the uh, meeting for questions. I think I'll, there'll probably be quite a few. I'll carry the mic or I'll okay, sure. Yeah. By the way, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. What I like about your, personally, is you're, you're a very good dispassionate observer. <laughs> you know, most people that have ever been involved with, they get very upset when they leave, and so it's hard to just be objective to talk about it. I thought you did a good job. My agitation only lasts a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not as dispassionate. <laughs> I'm not sure I have the answer. Thanks, Steve. Um, I was wondering, well, let me just say, you, you didn't know how to categorize these, and I would have no problem calling it a cult. And on your page three, where it has reasons why people believe this declaration, earlier you mentioned delusion. And if people aren't, if it's not the true word of God, then they are deluded. And it is a cult by nature. Is that right? Hold on. Uh, it depends on what you consider a cult, you know. I, I think that the definition varies among people. I think I would say I would say that within apostolic prophetic there are a lot of cult groups, cultish groups, because there's so there's so many different types of groups, and I'd say many of them, maybe more than half, could be considered cults. But some, again, they don't necessarily all show the characteristics of, of really like. Um, Having you know one man control, or I think I think that if you consider a cult like a devotion to a an, an unbiblical idea or agenda, then I guess it could be. Isn't it a different Jesus? Um, you said, "Isn't it a different Jesus?" Um, let's see. I'm. I think they. 
It's a good question. I think they acknowledge the Jesus of the Bible, but again, they don't. Uh, but they also they also believe in you know, conflicting ideas. They have conflicting thoughts or or notions. It's uh, like I said, they um, they are shallow in the gospel, and a lot of these people have been you know have been saved biblically. But again, they never, they're never taught properly afterward. And so they get into spurious teaching. Um, and again, like I said, some, are, some of these people are not saved. That's, uh, that's, uh, yeah, Eric? You know, one thing I was just thinking, Steve, um, oh, I'm sorry. To... You know, um, we often say with the gospel, it's a, the person and work of Christ. And I always think about sometimes you might have someone who they'll get the person right. He's virgin born. Um, son of God, sinless. They might get all that, but they might distort his work. In other words, I think about eschatology as kind of the defining issue. Like you were pointing out, Steve, here you and I know that Christ is coming back and the world is really in a shambles when he does. It's not that the church is triumphant and we wipe out all the evildoers and trample them underfoot and we basically, you know, Christianize the planet before he comes. No, it's really the opposite. Uh, the world is in a shambles. Jesus comes back and victoriously brings the new Jerusalem. So all of a sudden you see it's a distortion of the work of Christ. Um, you have a deficient Christ. He's not strong enough. He needs our help. It's, it's really um, a different Christ in that sense then. So, yeah. The next one was dancing. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Steve. Something I struggle with a lot is understanding how somebody, a baby Christian at that, that's drawn to something like this, and I try not to be judgmental at the same time, but how can someone be saved? Like, what are the deal killers? You know, there's certain deal killers, and and this is just just a broad general statement, if not a question, but I struggle with understanding how someone can be saved being brought up in this and being that distorted. Well, it, uh, it happened to me that way. I got saved, and then I got drawn into this thing. You know, and, and again, it's um, and just the fact that <clears throat> when you're a young Christian... You're, you are easily swayed by rhetoric, by sight and sound. And you're easily swayed. When, you're not, when you haven't been you know, instructed in the truth, you're easily swayed. Now, I, I, I've sort of wondered myself, how, how badly deluded can a person be and still possibly be a saved person? What is the extent of, the, of how uninformed and deluded can you be? You know, some people, you know, have a very short, you know, uh, the circle goes only out a little ways. With others, it goes a little longer. I don't know if I can, you know, answer for sure, but, but let's put it, you know, I think every, every person who ever, whoever gets saved can go for many years, even if they've never been in this sort of thing. They can be confused, uh, Ignorant, or or they can receive false teaching somewhere. You know, I mean, you can get false teaching out, outside of these groups too. But it's just you know, just a matter of uh, you know, to what extent can a person be ignorant or deluded? And also, I think the thing too is that 
if a person does get does get deluded or led astray and they're really pursuing the Lord, they really want have a heart for God, they will come out of it. They will eventually you know get Oh, right, yeah, for sure. Wouldn't you say that if the true gospel is consistently preached and someone in that movement keeps hearing the true gospel, there's got to be something in them that will respond to the truth about Christ. It's kind of, how can you be cold and, excuse me, how can you be cold and hard-hearted about Christ? That's See, I also was in this movement in the 70s, and I believe I went into it as a Christian. But it, the, because I had some good teachers at Bible college, I knew what to go back to. I can't justify having got into it. But the cycle was about five years, and I realized this isn't biblical. I have to get out. So, it, But... Uh, the gospel itself is the key next. Uh, okay. I'm trying to remember the order the hands went up. Steve, I, I think you did an awesome job um, prefacing because I don't want to, I want this to be a general comment, um, like you said at, at the beginning. Um, the, the, the theme that I picked up, and maybe it's because I wanted to, or maybe I just was too narrow-minded on it, weak people, uh, horrible things happening in their lives, perhaps some mental uh, uh, frailties, um, spiritual warfare. It seems like this group almost preys on on the weak. Observation. I think you could also say they give hope to the weak. They're not not everybody has bad motives. You know, when I was in this group, we would help anybody. It didn't matter who they were, how bad off they were. We would bring them in and help them. Uh, in my case, I got into this because I wanted a more uh, pure version of the, quote, kingdom of God to live out what the apostles had in the book of Acts and things like that. But then it got more and more unbiblical as these things came through. And I think there are people praying on the weak. You know. But there are people wanting to help them as well. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. Um, I think the uh, in, in, in the Rochester groups that I noticed, there was a, a lot of people had heart had a heart for the downtrodden, you know, the homeless, the street people, the mentally ill. But they sort of and they sort of gushed over them, if I can use that word. They sort of made a big fuss over them, but didn't help them that much. You know, it's, I don't know if, you would call, if that would be called being predatory, but they would go, maybe go out of the way to reach a, a, a needy person. And they'd sort of shower them like a woman would shower some young street kid with maternal affection and all that. But they often didn't help them any, maybe, maybe materially for a while or give them some encouragement or, or just befriend them for, you know, for a while. But... Um, yeah, they, I think one thing also that happens is that if a, if a, if a needy person proves a, or if his or her problems don't get solved right away, they can often be rejected by the group. Yeah, they give up on them. Yeah, they, yeah, they give up because the, the group is not capable of meeting their need. I mean, they're using Band-Aids, you know, and 
on serious needs. In our case, it was always trying to fight all the demons. But then we had this theology that would suggest that if you weren't sinlessly perfect, you'd let all the demons back in, so it's your own fault. <laughs> and I used to believe that, and I've written articles and published them repenting of my former false belief. I feel terrible about having said that to anybody. I, I believe now I was sinning by saying that to people, but I believed it. I, I learned it from Watchman Nee. I thought that's the way it was. I'm a slow learner. It took me five years to figure out that was wrong. Um, I just sometimes I've been in situations where I've kind of seen some of these things go on. And I know I was at a church um, several years ago where a woman led us through a prayer style of um, she was going to go and live in Chanhassen because she was going to pray over the city and drive out all the bad things that were going on there. And she knew that God had placed her in this house because it had the right paint color in the house and all these things. And she led us through this whole service this way. And, and I guess what I'm struggling with is how, when you see these types of things, how is it that the Holy Spirit says something to her, but the Holy Spirit says something else to you. And I sat there the whole time, you know, going, he's not saying that to me. And how do we deal with this when we see it start to go on, you know? How can you effectively say something to people who really believe that? And, and they're, they're intentionally, they're good. I know they are. But you're like, I don't see that in Scripture. How do you deal with that? Let, let me, yeah, good question. Let me get that to the answer me on here. I think it would depend on the individual situation, you know, who, how close I was to the person, you know, how, 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 eas- how reasonable do they appear, how, how easily can they be approached. I sort of judge how approachable a person is before I, I say anything. Um, I haven't ha- haven't had to do haven't been involved in this kind of an encounter for a long time, so I haven't don't know exactly how I how I'd respond. But I, well, I can tell you, she wrote a book for the, the Twin Cities on how to do this. Oh, and a lot of people were listening to her because she was a leader. And yeah. Like, oh, she's got this. You, know, God gave her this, and so you're like, yeah. well, you can't get me to that. You, know? you said something earlier, uh, Steve, that I think is very instructive. Just learn how to live with inconsistencies. You know, logical uh, categories where things are contradictory, therefore they must be rejected. That's how we think. But that's not how it works in these groups. Because they'll come and listen to five or ten great preachers that come into town. What makes them a great leader? They sold a lot of books or they have a lot of followers. And they can all contradict each other and nobody will even notice or care. Yeah, so maybe uh, they should take our Andy's course on logic. <laughs> you know, Steve, I thought you made a good point um, in your message just about the subjective versus the objective, and I think that that's one of the things we always have to do is get people away from the subjective and get them back to the objective word. And 
um, that, that way we can minister because if we are left in the subjective realm or they're feeling something versus my feelings, you know, I might feel for pizza that night and they feel for roast beef, but you know, what we have to do is get back to what's objective. And I was going to ask you, um, and I'm sorry, there's probably somebody in front of me. Um, okay. I'll shut up and I'll come back. Okay. <laughs> no, we, our background also is in this and it, how it just quickly sneaks up on you. But um, I think, like Brian had asked, um, is it a different Jesus? And what made me think about it is, you know, their emphasis is the Holy Spirit and his power, and they diminish Christ. And so everything then becomes about your experience and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we know that Scripture says that the Holy Spirit brings us to Christ. It reminds us of Christ and the word. That's what he does. So anything else that they claim the Holy Spirit is doing is not true. And so um, the other thing, too, is, you know, they'll uh, so many testimonies. Everybody gets up. So you have all these little breadcrumbs of testimonies of how great their lives turned out and all these wonderful things. And it gives you the hope that you might be next. You might be next. Uh-huh. And when they, you know, they also, too, with the God talking to them and saying all these things. And you kind of wonder, oh, if I pray more, if I do this next activity, if I'm at church on Wednesday and Sunday and Saturday, it'll be me, and then he'll speak to, you know. So it's all these things that are just trying to push you over the edge. And the last thing I wanted to say, too, is when they talk about, because everything is so focused on experience, you do, and then the music and all of the excitement and the energy that goes on, but you could be encountering demons. Somebody may speak to them, but it certainly isn't the Holy Spirit, and it's not God. Wow. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I was raised in the Lutheran Church, and some friends of mine introduced me to this kind of um, service or gathering. It wasn't a church per se as such back back in the 70s when Bob and I were going to get into it. But I, I realized that they were offering more of what the scripture said at that time than what the Lutheran Church was teaching. And so I'm going, whoa, this is pretty exciting. And some of your questions asked about how you get drawn into this, that was a way that I was interested because I'm fascinated with the Word of God and I wanted to know more. So I was just head over heels into the Word. And, of course, then I got into more of what the, the deviant things that were happening uh, in that particular gathering where you couldn't do anything without asking the leadership, should I buy a car and what color should it be and should I move to this house and in that city and you know get permission from the leadership to do this? There's a word for that, Bob. Shepherding. Shepherding. Thank you. And, and it, you know, I got, got into that a little bit and, and I started realizing that some of this stuff that I was hearing wasn't lining up with what I saw in Scripture and so then the red flags start going up, and uh, your question about how do you get into this stuff and then, and then still be a Christian, well, you know, the Holy Spirit, like we talked about earlier, the Holy Spirit begins to uh, speak to your heart and your mind and say, you know, this is not what my word says. And so then you start to say, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't be here. And, you know, as the Lord leads, then, then that's what, what I did is get out and go to another gospel preaching fellowship 
but that's my story. You know, just I, I was seeking out more of the Word of God, and I know that other people in that um, gathering, I'll call it, uh, were seeking the same kind of things in that re- in that regard. But they were, and I think Steve, you put it exactly right when you said they were saved, or a lot of them, but not grounded in the gospel. And so then, you know, without the grounding, they were just sucked in deeper and deeper and deeper. So, I know people that I that were converted through through the movement, uh, Steve. That were especially Lutherans. Well, our old friend Lois Shirky. Uh, the Lutheran Church wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit. It was liturgies and and things like that. And so someone says, have you received the Holy Spirit? Sort of like Paul did in Ephesus. Well, I don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. And that's really kind of the beginning of the Lutheran renewal. And I honestly think a lot of people were being converted, but they thought they were receiving the second blessing. That's just my idea. I, I can't prove it. But such people will respond to the true gospel when they start hearing it. Hey, thanks, Steve, because you put your heart into it. It was really good. Um, I was just going to ask, how was it that you did finally get out of that? And knowing you from back at Campus Church, where did that fit in along the way? Uh, Campus Church, O'Neill. Oh, okay. Makes my life easier later when I get it. <laughs> so, okay. So what is, your, what is the first part of your question again, Nancy? Um, I think what, what was really the, the key issue was I began to question this whole the latter rain idea of you know, the manifested sons. And I, I researched... I had, I had researched for many for a long, quite a few years all the websites that um, that spoke against that, but I still didn't, didn't believe them. But finally, at one point in time, I, I really looked at it just more objectively, more uh, relaxed a little, and looked at it. And I, re- you know, checked all these websites, studied these websites, and and I just it dawned on me that this whole laddering idea is false. And that sort of cleared up everything else in the process. That was the thing that cleared up the entire picture. So, I mean, I had already, I had not approved of apostolic prophetic that much, you know, that, uh, that much. But uh, I was, like I said, I was still drawn into it and I was observing it. And so I think that was the thing that really, uh, you know, clinched the deal was just this resolution of this issue about the manifested sons. So... <laughs> okay. Cool. You want me to tell the short version? Go ahead. Uh, do you have a short, short well, the version? Manifested sons believe they're receiving their glorified bodies now. The uh, uh, latter rain movement did, although their leaders started dying. Then there's some question about that. Well, yeah, the manifested son again. That's one of those doctrines that is not uniform. Is not uniform. There are variations of it. Uh, the best I, I understand it is that they believe that at a certain moment in the, in, in the future, the sons will be manifested, those who are called, chosen, and faithful. They will go out and they will restore earth to its paradise state. And they, and they will, at that, I think by then they will have their immortal bodies when they yeah. do that. And yeah. that's, uh, I had a more 
a nicer, tamer version of it in my own mind. See, I, was, I had my own ideas, even though I had my own understanding of some of these things, so I didn't really always agree word for word with somebody else that if I had a certain doctrine, I was, always, I was very creative in my own ways, too. So, so anyway. Okay. Um, thank you. No, very honestly, very good, very good. God bless. Oh, did you have one more thing? I was just going to mention one passage. Um, just if everyone would turn their Bible. I, I've dealt with this one time, and I, I saw a biblical argument you may want to be aware of. Um, where, where do these people get this idea that you have modern-day apostles and prophets? I ran into this with a ministry that I was doing work for, and then I subsequently left because we had some differences over whether or not you could have modern-day apostles and prophets. But if you turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2.20, I would sit down with these people and say, well, look at this passage. How can you claim that there's modern-day apostles and prophets? When you look at Ephesians 2.20, I'll just start in verse 19. Notice it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then he goes on to say, In whom the whole building is being fit together. Well, the obvious idea there is you have a foundation that was laid. It's comprised of apostles, of prophets, and Jesus. Well, you don't have multiple foundations. A building only has one. And it's past tense. It's aorist there. So all these things have already been done. So just as you don't have new Christ, you don't have new apostles and prophets. That's yeah. been finished. Well, what's interesting is if you turn your Bible ahead, they'll turn, if, these, if you're debating one of these people, they'll turn you to Ephesians 4, verse 8. And this is, remember, where this is a quotation from Psalm 68, and Paul's citing it to explain what Christ did, but they'll distort it. It says here, this is Ephesians 4, 8. It says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, what they'll do with that is they'll say, well, see, now you are talking about gifts, not offices. Okay, so now they've shifted from, from offices to gifts, and they'll say, notice it goes on to, say that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, if you read on down. Um, yeah, right here in verse 11. For, so I'm in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some to be apostles and some as prophets. So what they'll argue is that, well, those are gifts. And certainly the gifts are for the church today. So you see the shift from Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20, they were men. And now in Ephesians 4.11, they're gifts that are open to everybody. That's the shift that this movement's making. But what we have to realize is that the context was in Psalm 68, what the psalmist was rejoicing in is that when God went on high to Mount Zion, he received the Levites in order that he could give them back as gifts. And so what was happening is what Paul is saying is God is doing the same thing in the New Testament. So the gifts were men and they were offices. And so there's no difference then between Ephesians 2.20 in Ephesians 4.11, they're still the same category. And so we can't let the apostolic reformation or, you know, new apostolic reformation prophets, uh, people who believe those things today, we can't get, let them get away with shifting from one category to the next, from Ephesians 2.20 to Ephesians 4.11. I think that's kind of a, a key exegetical point that we got to hang tough on. So, Amen. yeah. Amen. So, well, thank okay. You, thank yeah. you, everybody. God yeah. bless you.